Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Now through the study of God's Word, so grab your Bibles, grab your devices, let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to do the whole chapter today, so find it in your Bibles towards the end of, of your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 2, just a small book, three chapters long. We're going to continue this series that we've called Make Every Effort. Uh, Paul, Peter makes this statement early on in chapter 1. He'll say it again at the end of chapter 1, though he'll come back to it here in chapter 3 uh, in the next couple of weeks, but uh, there's... A theologian, author, pastor named Dallas Willard who has this quote that's been just foundational for me in this series. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. We have this weird dichotomy as followers of Jesus that we are saved um, by grace and therefore we don't have to do anything the rest of our lives. But to be in relationship with Jesus, it does require effort. To, be, uh, to flourish as the humans that God has called us to be and created us to be, it does require effort. And we don't like that side of it sometimes, or we make that confusing and it becomes all about effort, but we are to make every effort. As Paul would say, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we're gonna see this morning why it's so important for us to make every effort. We're gonna study the whole chapter of chapter two today. Peter um, is very pastoral in this letter, particularly here in chapter two, and he gets passionately pastoral. He sees, as every pastor should, he sees uh, the people in the church as sheep in need of a shepherd. And pastors then are shepherds. Under the chief shepherd, Jesus, we are to shepherd the flock of God that is among us. We studied that in our last series in 1 Peter. And Peter has a passion because what he sees is wolves coming in to devour the sheep. And what he sees now in 2 Peter is not wolves who look like wolves, but wolves who look like sheep. And they've made their way into the churches and they've begun to share some false teaching, false doctrine that is leading the people of God astray and people that Peter has loved intensely and loved deeply. So here's what I wanna do. I'm gonna read through all of chapter two just to give us an overview of it. And then I wanna give us some context, some more history around what's happening. We need to use our sanctified imagination a bit to put ourselves in the shoes of these people, which quite honestly should not be too hard for us today that I wanna look at just maybe three, four, or five verses inside of this passage that I think sum the whole thing up. And then what I wanna do is I wanna lay before you the true gospel of Jesus today. I wanna lay before you uh, the good news of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the empty tomb. I wanna lay that as clearly before you as I can so that I may not be named among those in 2 Peter chapter 2. Let's read this all the way through. Second Peter chapter two, we're gonna read the entire chapter together. Well, I'll read it. You read it by yourselves, quietly. Verse one. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow in their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Already picking up on Peter's passion in the first three verses. Verse four, 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, amen? and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He knows how to rescue and he knows how to condemn. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. That's a reference there to the apostles. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these, like irrational animals, Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, and they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgressions. A speechless donkey, those in the King James have a different word there, spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These false teachers are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness have, has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Very uplifting and encouraging passage today. <laughs> Peter, uh, Peter's passionate about his sheep and therefore he hates the wolves, hates them. Read through it. Read through what he is praying for for them and what he has seen in the past and what he is basing that assumption on is the history and proven character of God that God does not put up with false prophets and false teachers. He does not deal kindly with those who misinterpret and misteach this sacred scripture. They are condemned. It's better for them to have never been alive, the false teachers. 
Now, if you know the story of Peter, um, Peter is one who had been tossed to and fro by different waves of teaching and, and culture and doctrine. Peter is one who, who thought he knew what he knew, but then when push came to shove, couldn't really stand on the foundation he had built for himself. And so over the next 30 or so years, Peter has developed a true passion for his people, for the flock of God. And in that passion now comes up a deep hatred for anyone who would try to mess with his people. And so he writes this from that very uh, perspective. This is a passionate plea from the pastor, Peter. Now, I said it last week, there's a connection for us between suffering and false teaching. False teachers prey on the suffering of people. False teachers, false doctrine, false prophet, uh, prophecy, it all revolves around the suffering and pain of people. I could give you a list of well-known false teachers today, and you would see the connection. They are preying on vulnerable people. People who are suffering in need of a glimpse of hope, people who are suffering financially in need of some kind of financial, they'll call it breakthrough, anything like that. So where there is suffering, there is the fodder for false teaching. Suffering is just the kindling by which the false teacher lights the fire of heresy. So what Peter recognizes is for his people, the people of these churches in the Roman provinces, he recognizes suffering is intense and it's just going to get worse and they are prey, they're vulnerable to the false teachers. And Peter desperately wants his people to be safe from them. Like Peter, I'm growing in my passion for this, that I, I hate it. I hate that our people are drawn astray by false teachers by the ones who would twist the word of God to make you think it says something that it doesn't and therefore build your life and build your, your house on the sand and when the winds and the rain come, there's nothing to stand on. I'm tired of seeing it for our children. I'm tired of seeing it for my family. I'm tired of seeing it for you. I'm tired of seeing it when, when you're in, in seasons of suffering, how the, it seems like the false teaching just seems to magically make its way into your life. And it provides what seems to be a way of escape only to lead to your sure and steady destruction. And as elders, as shepherds, it is our job to, to protect the flock. So this plea from Peter, I, I feel it in his bones today. I feel it. I feel it from him. So let me give us some context to understand what's happening. And as, as we walk through this, I want you to do the best you can to put yourself in their shoes, put yourself in this, in this situation and circumstances and experiences of what they're going through, okay? Now, 2 Peter uh, was written, um, come up on the slide. 2 Peter was written earlier than uh, many people would think it was, but it's written between 66 and 68 AD. 1 Peter written between 64 and 65, and not too long after that, we get 2 Peter. So this is important, um, this history is important for us. This is all written in the context of real world history. This is not a fairy tale that we read. This is written in the context of actual proven history. 66 to 68 AD is when this was written. So let me give us some context of what's going on around it. 49 AD, the Jews are kicked out of Rome and not for the first time. It's like the second or third time they've been kicked out of Rome. Happened in 19 AD and then um, a number of years after that, particularly after Jesus' resurrection, the Jews have been kicked out of Rome and they've been pushed to the sides. They've been banished, ostracized from 
Rome. And so there's, there's no more Jewish tradition in the provinces of Rome, no more celebrating of, of Hanukkah and Rosh Hashanah. None of that is happening anymore. They've completely been removed. It's all under uh, the emperor Claudius, who is now in charge, and he kicks them out. And in fact, if you wanna read it later, Acts chapter 18 gives us the biblical account of this happening and why it happened and how it happened. You're gonna realize that a lot of the New Testament overlaps itself. This is happening here, 49 AD. Now, 54 AD, Claudius dies. The emperor Claudius dies. And with his death then, uh, kills that edict. And so now the Jews can begin to make their way back into Rome. They've left family there five years ago. They've uh, left businesses. And so they begin to trickle back into, into Rome in 54 AD. Again, it starts off slowly, but as the years progress, it builds. Remember, now this is written 66 to 68 AD, so we're 14 to 16 years later in this letter. Also in 54 AD, the emperor Nero takes over. Nero is 17 years old. We talked about this in 1 Peter. I don't know any 17-year-olds I would trust driving my car, much less driving my empire. It's just not gonna happen. 17 years old, um, his adopted father, Claudius, died in 54. Now, what's interesting is that Claudius had a biological son that he overlooked in order to make Nero the emperor, which I'm sure caused some problems. Nero uh, now uh, takes over in 54 AD. He's reluctant at the age of 17. He doesn't wanna be a politician. He wants to be a musician and a playwright. He wants to be famous. He wants to be on reality TV. This is who uh, he wants to write songs and perform, and this is who, he, he, who Nero wants to be. But reluctantly, he takes over. He's only 17, and so his mother actually leads with him for the first two years. In Roman, on Roman currency would be a picture of Nero and of his mama on that coin. So you tell me, 17-year-old, how's your mom doing? Is, that, is she doing okay? So this is for the first couple of years. It's, it's Nero and his mama uh, leading, leading the Roman Empire. So let me give you some background on Nero. At the age of three, Nero's biological father passed away, tragically passed away. At the age of 12, his mom, who is pursuing uh, financial gain, pursuing uh, power, marries a man much her elder in Claudius. Nero is 12 years old. Nero, at the age of 12, has already decided a lot of things about who he is and what he wants to be. And at 12 years old, he's forced to now have a stepfather, later um, adopts, uh, Claudius later adopts Nero. Nero now is in power in 54 AD. In 59 AD, Nero has his mother killed. After multiple attempts, mind you, which again, his stepbrother hates him and now he's trying to kill his mother. Doesn't go well, he tries to drown her, tries a shipwreck, that doesn't happen, she swims to shore. And basically says, hey, if Nero wants to kill me, he's got to do it to my face. Dang, mama, all right. And so Nero, uh, put some more orders in place, and then has her killed. This is in 59 AD. He has his mother killed. He's afraid that she wants to kill him and take over, um, so he kills her. 62 AD, Nero then kills his wife, Octavia. I mean, just a shining example of what a man should be, this Nero. But he kills his wife, Octavia. He divorced her under the grounds of barrenness because she hadn't produced for him an heir. He accuses her of adultery and then kills her in 62 AD. So in the period of three years, he has killed the two women closest to him. 63 AD, Nero then marries another woman named Poppea, who's already pregnant with his daughter, but the daughter dies three months later in 63 AD. 
So Nero's life is one of tragedy. Nero's life is one of just uh, expectation and disappointment, failure and tragedy throughout his life. So then we get to 64 AD, and in 64 AD, there's a, what's called the Great Rome Fire. I don't know who started the fire. I'm not gonna make that joke again. So fire, the fire starts um, in the theater district, in the market district, and a rumor goes out that it's Nero who actually had the fire started. He's the one who ordered the fire to happen. There's actually some, um, we have some proof that that might've been what actually happened. And if you look back over the course of Nero's life, why would he not have started the fire? His whole life was up in flames, why not? He didn't wanna be the emperor, he didn't want any of this life, and yet here he is. And so he, uh, a fire starts in 64 in the theater district, makes his way throughout Rome, uh, destroys 12 of the 15 standing provinces of Rome because of the wind that comes along with it. So Nero recognizes the error of his ways, tries to earn back the love of his people because like any good uh, playwright and musician, he's nothing if not for the fans. And so he tries to get the fans back on his side. He uh, provides housing for those who were homeless in his courtyards. He gives out gifts and, and financial stipends and all types of things to earn back the love of the people. But over time, that begins to fade. And so Nero is left then having to pin the blame on somebody. And in 64 AD, Nero blames the Great Rome Fire on a small group of religious fanatics called Christians. And so what was once a safe place for Christians from 54 to 64 AD, particularly those of the Jewish faith who have come back, was a safe place. And Christianity was flourishing here. It, they were allowed to worship however they wanted to. They were good people who brought good to the community. For about 10 years, everything seemed fine. And then 64 AD, the fire happens. Nero is backed against the wall and he pins the fire on the Christians and everything falls apart at that point. Persecution happens. Nero then begins to have Christians arrested on the word of mouth of other people who would say that they were Christians. He dresses them up like, um, like wild beasts and has them as actors in his play to be devoured by lions and dogs in front of a live studio audience. Nero, over the course of his reign, would take Christians and he would um, uh, cover them in tar, cover them in gasoline, and then light them on fire to light his parties. This is who Nero is. 64 AD. A couple of years later now, 66 to 68 AD, it's just reached a fever pitch. Everything's falling apart. These Christians who once found a season of flourishing in this country are now being um, persecuted and martyred simply for their faith. So when Peter writes this letter, what he understands is there's a group of people in intense suffering prone to false teaching vulnerable to those who would come in with destructive heresy. So let's step back from this and let's use our sanctified imagination and let's think outside of the black and white words that are on the page. I want us to think about what it would be like to be in this time, to be in the world, in these Roman provinces at that time. You've got Gentile and Jewish Christians Gentiles, so not Jewish Christians, have come to faith through the finished work, the resurrection of Jesus and the testimony of men like Peter. And, and Silas and Timothy and Titus have, have shared the gospel. And so they've, they've come to faith and churches are being born and built. And, and they're Gentile without a whole lot of baggage. And then you've got these Jewish Christians. And they were flourishing when Nero took over. They got to come back to their homes. They got to 
uh, worship together. They got to do all the festivals and the feasts. And now for the first time in their Jewish history, in their Jewish faith journey, in their own lifetime, there is intense persecution for them. So even inside of the church now, you've got the Gentile Christians at odd with the Jewish Christians and there's stress mounting. And on top of that, the Christians are ostracized by society. Everywhere they go, they're marked as believers in the way of Jesus. Everywhere they go, they get the side eye, the rumors, the conversations. Well, maybe they were the one that started the fire. Maybe, maybe they were the one who lit the match. Maybe were they there? Did they affirm of it? Did they approve of it? And so um, those who were outside of society, they were ostracized by the common uh, society, were now uh, Christians, and they can't go anywhere. They can't buy or sell in the marketplace unless they declare that Caesar, Nero, is Lord. They've left They've been left without their business. They've been left without a number of friends. They have no seat at the table. And it's not like it once was. For the past 10 years, things were fine. Christians were flourishing. The church was growing. They were free to worship and gather how they wanted to. But now they're hated. They are a menace to society. Their very beliefs are believed to be the downfall of the Roman Empire. So they're pushed to the side. There's no business there. Everything they've built their lives or built within their lives now had crumbled and fallen. But they're not, they're not considered just an odd group of people with odd beliefs. They're not the Amish, right? They're not just considered this odd people who make their own butter, you know, who are kind of weird and ride wagons. Um, but have you had their pies? Because, okay. Right, so they're not this. The Christians at this time, they're, they're not just a sect of people who live somewhere in Pennsylvania and know how to cook, right? That, that's not them. I mean, they're hated. They're hated. They're, they're full of treason. This is who the Christians are considered just by society. Now let's go in a deep further. Think about their families. Mostly Roman families who supports Caesar, Caesar is Lord, trying to uphold the great name of Caesar. And these Christians now are an embarrassment to their family. They're an embarrassment to their parents and their neighbors and their friends. And so while society isn't accepting them, for many of these Christians, they can't even go back home. Mom and dad can't believe they've chosen this way of life, and why would they keep believing this under all the persecution? They could just get out by just, by just claiming Caesar is Lord. Why, why continue in this? Why, why put our grandkids through that is the question of the grandparents. They're avoided by their family. They're not getting texts anymore or phone calls, not invited to family gatherings. The Jewish Christians, their families cannot believe they fell for the, the belief that Jesus is the Messiah and that they've staked their lives on it. Families are embarrassed by it. The Gentile Christians, their families are confused as to why. Why? Things were fine before. You had a good business. You had a good life. Why? Why give up what you had for this? So they've got no one. They've, they've got nothing to live for in society and nothing to live for in the home. Holidays come around, they can't go back home, or they go back home, but no one talks to them. Year after year after year, they're poor, they're ostracized, they're lonely, and they are fearful. Every time they step out of their homes, they're afraid for their lives. 
And it could all be resolved by just declaring Caesar is Lord. That's all you have to do. And some did. And others didn't. Now imagine, imagine you lived in that constant day in, day out tension. Every time you woke up, you were faced with the fact that you've got nobody and you've got nothing. And all for what? For some belief? For some religion? For some faith? For some for something where you, you've placed your life on some belief that some Jewish man died, he was murdered as a criminal, and that he arose from the dead. All for that. You've given up your family, you've given up your job, you've given up your career, you've given up your safety, all for some fanatical belief. And every morning you wake up and you're faced with it. And you can't gather with other Christians to be affirmed of that because it's just hard to get together in this climate. And so you can't do what you once did and you're struggling. And the husband, his father is wondering, what has he done to his family? Is it worth all this? Is it it worth my wife crying herself to sleep because she's afraid of what might happen to her kids? Is, is Is it worth the fear in your kids' eyes? knowing they can't go outside, they can't go play with their friends, they can't go uh, to the marketplace. Is it worth all that? And then you lay your head on your pillow at night, hoping you make it through the night, hoping that no one comes in through those doors or those windows, that, that you make it just one more night. Imagine you lived in that kind of attention. Now, how precious would it be to you if someone with charisma and authority, someone who could take the Old Testament scriptures and do magic with them, what if they came to you and said, hey, these things you're feeling, I can make it feel better. You don't have to feel this way anymore. What if if someone with the charisma and authority could just twist the Bible and give you just enough truth to make you think it might actually be okay and would just say things like, you don't have to be ostracized, you know. You don't, you don't have to be distant from your family. You don't, you don't have to keep believing these things and saying these things. You don't have to be poor anymore. Do you know that God doesn't want you to be poor? Did you know that, that God doesn't, doesn't want you to feel this way? Now, how precious would it be if someone, when you were desperate for hope and someone with charisma and authority and good looks and a podcast came into you, into your house and say, I've written a book about it. You want a better life than you're living? I think God wants a better life for you. Let me show you how. Do you see how precious that would be to someone in that kind of suffering? Do you see why Peter is so passionate about this? Because the people are vulnerable. Everything's falling apart. They just, give me something today. Every day feels like Monday. I need a Friday. Give me a Friday. And then some frat guy comes in and says, I'll show you a Friday. And then he bases it on these words. See how easy it is to fall into false teaching, particularly in seasons of suffering and despair. And they prey on us like that. They prey when our hearts are broken. They prey on us when there's no money in the bank account. They prey on us when our marriages are falling apart. They prey on us when our kids are wilding out and we can't get a hold of them. They, that's when they creep in. And Peter knows it. He's passionate about it. 
and he wants to remind his people, these false teachers are liars. They're animals and God will destroy them. Don't go with them. Second Peter chapter two, verse one, tells us that false prophets in the Old Testament arose among the people, and he's telling the people of the churches in Rome, there will be false teachers, and he says, among you, within you. It's easy to spot the heresy on the outside of the church, isn't it? It's easy to spot how the Muslim faith might not be right or um, Jehovah's Witness, but, but this, when it, when it comes from within the church, he says, there will be false teachers from among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master, the sovereign king, the sovereign one who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, we would be keenly aware of heresy, complete heresy, but imagine if someone were to come in and say, hey, you can believe in Jesus. Well, come on, you don't have to confess all of that. Like, you don't have to confess those things. You don't have to sing those songs or do those practices or even go to church. You can worship God wherever you are. You know, you can believe in Jesus and go to church on the golf course. That's what they would say to you. You can, you can believe in Jesus and hurt whoever you want to on the way to the top of your corporate ladder. These people, they're the ones that we struggle with. The ones who would say, hey, these passages, they, they don't apply now. That's, that's for back then. Like these passages about um, preference and sexuality, that, that was for them years ago. That's not for today. That was for a particular people at a particular time. And they would say things like, I mean, God is love, isn't he? I mean, doesn't God love you? If he loved you, wouldn't, wouldn't he want what's best for you? And if God is love and he calls you to love, then, then shouldn't you just be okay with whatever? It doesn't sound like heresy because it's rooted in something that feels like scripture. It would say, man, the Bible, it's just, the way you're reading is too old-fashioned. That's too strict, too many limitations. You know what science says, don't you? You're just being too judgmental. It's, it's offensive to feel the way you feel, to believe the things you believe. I mean, do you get how we can get sucked right into false teaching? We get led astray. Verse two, Peter says, many will follow their sensuality. Some of your translations say licentiousness, which is where we get the word license. Now, sensuality is deeply connected to sexuality. So many will follow their sexuality, their, um, uh, their sexiness, in other words. The idea of licentiousness, is, it became to be known as just complete, um, com complete freedom when it comes to sexuality and sexual behavior. But really what's underneath all of that in the Greek, in this word for sensuality, is the idea of our senses. It's, it's a base level. They will follow this. It's, it's the false teachers that appeal to our need to be liked that appeal to our need to be safe, that appeal to our need to be comfortable, that appeal to our need to be successful, that appeal to our need to be loved by people. They appeal to our need for us to, we, to like what the Bible says. They appeal to our need to be liked by our neighbor. 
They appeal to our need to not have to hold on to beliefs you don't like, and you don't have to read certain passages if it makes you feel uncomfortable. If it convicts you, you don't have to read it. And they appeal to your desire just to feel good. You have a license to feel good. If it feels good, do it. If it feels bad, don't. If it makes you happy, pursue it. If it's difficult, it's probably not good. This is what it means that they followed their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Verse three, in their greed, and the, the false teachers' greed, they will exploit you with false words. Now, greed comes in all shapes, forms, and sizes, doesn't it? Greed can be about finances. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Hey, if you give a dollar, God's gonna give you 10. If you give 100, God's gonna give you $1,000. Some will appeal to you in the financial greed. They want financial greed, but I think most false teachers, it's really the greed of affirmation, the greed of attention, um, the greed of likes on social media, the greed of making sure no one hates them. And so they'll be interviewed by Oprah and they won't take a stance on anything. On a smaller scale, they'll sit across from somebody at coffee and somebody will confess something to them and then this false teacher will say, well, I mean, listen, God still loves you. You just keep doing what you're doing. There's enough grace. I don't wanna offend, don't wanna step on toes, don't wanna draw lines in the sand. So in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And Peter is clear their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not, a, destruction is not asleep. Verse 12. If we go down to verse 12, Peter calls them irrational animals, creatures of instinct, which takes us back to the idea of sensuality. It's a base level. It's animalistic. It's not rational, it's instinctual. It's, it's these false teachers pursue their own self-preservation and they teach you to do the same thing. They're creatures of instinct. Fight or flight, how do I defend myself? It's, it's, it's the way your dog behaves when he or she is provoked because it's a dog. It's the way a, a tiger behaves because a tiger is a tiger. And you can train a tiger and it can stand on a stool and you can put your head in its mouth, but at some point, the tiger is still a tiger. These false teachers are living animalistically. They're going off of their base senses, their base needs and lusts and desires. They're not processing what's happening. They're just going off of whatever feels good. Whatever makes me feel good, I'm gonna pursue that. And then verse 17, Peter calls them waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. You know, springs in the desert should be springs of flowing water. So the picture Peter is painting is these people suffering in the desert of persecution and pain and loneliness and poverty, and they see what seems to be a spring of water on the horizon only to get close enough to realize there's actually nothing there. This is what a false teacher is. They look like they are gonna offer you relief. They look like they're gonna offer you hope and nourishment and refreshment, but the closer you get, the re you realize, oh, there's actually nothing there. Then he calls them mist driven by a storm, the same arid desert. And you see a mist coming, except for these mists in this area of, of the world, these mists would only um, come before what would be a huge devastating storm that would then leave in its wake more destruction. 
These false teachers, they look like nourishment. They look like relief from the heat, only to find out that in their wake is destruction. They're driven by a storm. They're fake, they're shallow, there's no depth, there's no substance. Everything is emotional, everything feels good, and yet there's no foundation. And they leave a storm in their wake. Now, we can put ourselves there because we live here, can't we? We live in the same world they live in. We live in the same seasons of suffering, same seasons of pain, same seasons of sometimes persecution, where you have to make a decision what you're going to stand on. And there are teachers, there's heresy aplenty in 2021, who will tell you, oh, baby, I'm sorry, that hurts. Listen, I got a God who can make that feel a lot better. I've got a gospel for you that will make you able to pay all of your bills. I've got a gospel that will make your loneliness go away and you're gonna meet that man. We live in the same world with the same heresies and the same false teachers. What's different for us is that if you lay on top of our suffering social media, you lay on top of our suffering podcasts and books, you lay on top of, social, on top of suffering our need to have a hero, and we find ourselves deeply entrenched in false teaching and heresy. Waterless springs and mist driven by a storm social media and podcasts and YouTube. There's millions of churches. You drove past how many churches today to get here? They're everywhere. You used to have to um, become ordained to be able to do this. Now you just need to have a microphone and a camera. And you do whatever you wanna do and say whatever it is you want to say. And there are varying degrees of heresy. I mean, there's different places and preferences you can go. If, if you want someone who, who uh, teaches mostly the word of God and then twists some of the Old Testament just to make it fit what you want it to fit, you can find him or her. You wanna find someone who says, listen, we don't need the Old Testament. That's boring and gross anyway. Let's just do the New Testament. You could find him too. You wanna find someone who says, hey, you can believe in Jesus and also do whatever you want with your life. You can find that person. We can find whatever it is that we are looking for. 2 Timothy chapter four, Paul says that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. If you were to scroll through your YouTube preferences, your YouTube playlist, if you were to scroll through your podcast or go through your radio channels or your Fox News, CNN, CS, CNBC, if you wanna go through all that, how, how are you doing? Have you accumulated people to suit your own passions? Or are you looking for truth? And I'll tell you, truth doesn't build big churches most often. They will accumulate teachers to suit their own passions, verse four, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Well, truth for us is there is a true gospel. There is truth. It's not preference. It's not emotion and experience. There is truth, solid foundational truth from the word of God. There is a true gospel. There is a spring full of living water. John chapter four, Jesus is at a well in town speaking to a woman there. A woman has come to draw water from that well and she calls it Jacob's well. 
And Jesus meets with her and he says this in verse 13, everyone who drinks of the water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever, the drinks, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring, same word from 2 Peter 2, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There is a spring. There is eternal life. There is water that will nourish. There is a gospel that will restore. There's hope for us. But it's not found in false teaching pursuing their sensuality. It's not found in someone giving you five steps to a healthy marriage. What your soul needs is the good news of the gospel that restores your soul with your creator. That's what you need and that's what I need. I don't need a fat bank account. I don't need two and a half kids in a white picket fence. I don't need that. I don't need a spouse. I don't, what I need is for the brokenness in my heart to be filled by the finished work of Jesus. That's what I need. And that's what you need. And that's why God despises false teaching. It's a lie from the pit of hell that leaves people broken and empty. The gospel is this. From the beginning pages of scripture, you and I were created to glorify God. We were created to be with him. We were created with a uh, an eternity-sized hole in our hearts that would only be satisfied by relationship with the Creator. And in the brokenness of Adam and Eve, that was shattered, and we were left empty and void. And we will spend our lives trying to fill that void. The problem for us is there's a war for glory in our hearts and souls. To find restoration, to find wholeness, to find salvation, it only comes when God gets the glory when we glorify him, we lift him up and we exalt him. And he is jealous for that. He's jealous for our affection and our love and our devotion. He's, he's an angry, jealous boyfriend. He wants it. He wants all of it from us. And then we say, well, that sounds selfish. Well, that sounds egotistical. He sounds like a narcissist if you ask me. Okay, well, who else do you want him to worship? What glory do you want God to have higher than his? Do you want, want to have your glory ahead of, ahead of his? Then why worship him? Why, why, let's just skip the middleman and worship you. No, it's his. It's all his. And why does he want all of it? Because he is all of it. And because it's the only thing that will satisfy our souls. It's it. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. So his glory is preeminent, not ours. And that's where the problem creeps in for us. Because while we pursue our own glory, we pursue our own comfort, we pursue our own ego, we pursue our own finances, our own relationships. And all the while, God's saying, I have what you need. And in that brokenness, there was no way for us to get to him. So he gave us the law in the Old Testament to prove to us there's nothing we could do to fix it. No amount of legalism, no amount of doing the right thing, no amount of sacrifices would ever cover the brokenness in our hearts and our souls from sin. And so God, in his great love towards us, came in flesh. He did it himself. And he didn't wait for you to come to him. He came to you. He didn't wait for me to get my stuff together. He came to me while I was yet a sinner. Christ died for me. And he sent Jesus Jesus in perfect form, 
lived a perfect sinless life, the life you couldn't live and I could never live, and became the ultimate sacrifice, the final spotless lamb, sacrificed because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. All the way back to Genesis chapter three and Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with fig leaves and God knowing that would only last for a season. God kills an animal to cover their brokenness, the shedding of blood to cover their sin. And then you fast forward to Jesus who becomes that sacrifice to cover our sins. And what's great about it is this. After the crucifixion of Jesus, he was laid in a borrowed tomb. And three days later, he rose from the dead meaning that death doesn't end in death anymore for those who believe in the finished work of Jesus, but death can end in life. And the good news of the gospel is not found by pursuing your wants and your desires and your sensuality. The good news of the gospel, the satisfaction is found when you die to yourself, when you give up your own glory, knowing that in giving up your own glory and leaving it in the tomb, you are raised to life. And there is hope through the finished work of Jesus. So what do we do with it? Well, we admit that we need that first. The truth of us is that many of us haven't gotten there yet. We haven't gotten to a place to admit that we need a savior. We can admit that we want a vending machine, that we want somebody to do things for us that we need, but we haven't gotten to the place to admit that we're lost and desperate without him. Well, that's first, to find your brokenness and to claim it. And then secondly, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the perfect sacrifice for your sin. And what your soul most strongly desires, relationship with God, is only found through the finished work of Jesus on the cross in the empty tomb. And we say, I'm gonna stake my life on that. I'm gonna stake my life on that fact. And I'm not just gonna believe it with my mind, I'm gonna believe it with my feet and with my hands and with my family and my marriage and my parenting and with my schoolwork. I'm gonna believe it in the way that I live my life. Paul would say, you gotta declare that Jesus is Lord. And we confess it to the world. That, church, is the gospel of Jesus. and That is what gets you through suffering. That is what gets everything your soul desires and didn't know what to ask for. That is it. That's it. There is no shortcut. There is no other route. The way is narrow, and it might offend some, but it's the way to wholeness and human flourishing. So Mallory comes up. I'm gonna ask if you just bow your heads and close your eyes. Just got a couple of questions to ask you today. First is this. How vulnerable are you today to false teaching? How weary is your soul How famished are you to where you'll take anything that someone offers you as long as they call it meat, as long as they call it bread, you'll eat it. How vulnerable are you today? Secondly, I want us to wrestle with what false teaching have you allowed into your heart? What false gospels have you begun to believe? 
And the evidence is often found in our anxiousness and need to perform and prove. It's an indicator that you've believed something that's not true. Husbands and fathers, what false teaching have you allowed in your home? Maybe because you haven't fed, maybe you haven't given the nourishment of the gospel. And maybe just because there's brokenness in the world. Then I wanna ask this question. What false teaching have you shared? When you've sat across the table or across the phone from somebody? What have you shared with them that might not line up with scripture? What is your desire to um, not have confrontation and your desire to keep the peace? What has that kept, what has that made you to deliver that's false to somebody else? If you don't know Jesus this morning, you have to repent. Confess that you're a sinner and repent, turn from it. It's not enough to know you're a sinner, but to keep doing it. It's not repentance. Don't find salvation in admitting something. If you're here this morning and you've been in church for a really long time, but the gospel you received is not the true gospel. You've received some other gospel of prosperity or some gospel of right living or whatever. I'm pleading with you to find your rest and in Jesus alone for the good news of his finished work. There might be some of us today who need to repent from things that our hearts have been prone to believe. And on top of that, things that our mouths have uttered to other people. The altar is open for you, elders and pastors who'd love to pray with you. God, we thank you for this morning. I thank you that you are so passionately zealous for your children that you will stop at nothing You'll tear down all the idols. You'll tear down all the false teaching, all the false, false doctrine we've given ourselves over to you. And you're, you'll beg and you'll claw at us not to punish us, but to free us. God, I pray for freedom in this room today. You might reorient us away from the false teaching we've given ourselves over to and find ourselves rooted at the cross today. For those of us this morning who need to give our lives to you, may we do it through admitting our need for a savior, believing that Jesus is that savior and the confessing that he is Lord with our lives. God, I love you. I'm thankful that you saved my wretched soul. Not to make me better than or a good person, but to make me alive, to restore everything in my heart to satisfy the deeping, deepest longings of my soul. I found my rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.